0: Uh let me read a scripture to you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but I want to read uh, I want to read from Titus chapter 1, where Paul is addressing this letter and he gives his salutation. And in verse 4, he says to Titus, a true son in our common faith. And he calls Titus a true son. Uh, Timothy also was considered a son of Paul's. Now, these weren't biological sons. They were sons uh, in the faith. They were spiritual sons. But Paul loved them, and Paul uh, interacted with them just as though they were his sons. He considered them his sons. And today is Father's Day, and uh, and we're going to talk about fatherhood um, in the context of the scriptures, but not just fatherhood in terms of Biological dads and their children. But fatherhood, as presented in the scripture, um, not to segregate fatherhood in the home from fatherhood in the church, because we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't segregate these things. We're real guilty of that in our culture today. We segregate everything and we compartmentalize things, and we think this thing over here has no relation to this thing over here. And so, Sometimes you might hear people say, well, you know, your religion, that's for Sunday morning. You keep your religion in the church house, but don't bring it to the workhouse or don't bring it to the schoolhouse. Or, uh, but that's not the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is not confined to these four walls here for two hours on a Sunday morning. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is, is, encompasses everything. And so when we talk about these truths, when we talk about these things, we need to understand that really and truly what happens on Sunday morning uh, in the church has an impact on what happens Monday morning in Washington. What happens in Washington has an impact on what happens with us because this is how the world works. This is how the kingdom works. It's all interrelated. So today we're going to talk about the need for fathers. And I'm going to quote just a, a few statistics to you there are so many statistics and information out there especially about fatherhood um, but there was one national survey done uh, that was a survey about dad's attitudes about fathering and actually this uh, this conclusion was brought come, come to a, a, in a number of surveys that were done but of respondents agree that there is a father absence crisis in America. 91% of survey respondents agree that there is a father absence crisis in America. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, he writes to the Corinthians, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Do you hear what Paul said? You might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. And so the father absence crisis didn't begin in our time. It didn't begin in the 20th or the 21st century. The father absence crisis has been with us for thousands of years as testified by the Apostle Paul. And fatherlessness is most prevalent, or it's too prevalent, and it's most dangerous in the one place that it should least be known, and that's in the pulpit. So Paul says, you guys have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. He said, I begot you through the gospel. And so fatherlessness is something that we should not have in the church. But Paul says there's too much fatherlessness taking place in the church. Father, we just ask you today, Father in heaven, we ask you, Lord, by the blood of Jesus, we've been given the privilege to come to the very throne of grace, to come to the very presence of our Father. We ask you today, Lord, to open our hearts and to open our minds. God, I pray today that not just fathers, not just men, that we would all be challenged by the Word of God, by the gospel of Christ. And in that challenging, Lord, we would be changed, we would be touched, we would be transformed, we would be conformed in a greater measure to the very image of the Son of God. God, we ask this in the name of your Son. We thank you that you shall do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we give you honor and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. So the culture, the culture is a reflection. Do You guys realize that? The culture around us is a reflection of a lot of things. And I really firmly believe this, that the culture is a reflection for the church. It's a reflection of the church for the church. It's no accident that many of the things we see happening in our culture, we see the very same things happening in our church. Things like divorce rates and and pregnancy rates. And and a lot of those things, we, we don't see a lot of difference between what's happening in the world and what's happening in the church. And that's because the church is supposed to be having an impact on our culture. This is what Jesus said in the gospel. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, you are salt and light. He says, if the salt has lost its flavor, then what good is the salt? It's not good for anything but to be thrown underfoot and trampled. And so if we're salt, we're to be salty. If we're light, we're to be lighting, right? So he says, Who lights a candle? Who lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel basket and hides it under their bed? It can't give any light that way. And so the point of having light is to dispel darkness. The point of being salt is to preserve that which we come in contact with. And so this is what we are to be as Christians. That means that as we are salt and light, there should be a transformation, an impact that's made... On our culture, on the world around us. And so, the culture, when we see the culture not being impacted, we have to go back and say, why isn't the salt salty and why isn't the light lighting? One child out of every three is born into a home with no father present. And there's no lack of men producing children, but there's a lack of fathers. Men produce children, but but then they don't take responsibility to raise those children. You know, there is a difference between a father and someone who just produces a child. And so the problem, there's so many statistics out there, it would just make your head explode. I mean, you could just read endless re- reams of statistics, and that's not the point. The problem is easy to identify. The solution's really Not difficult to identify. The problem, though, is solving this issue. The difficulty is solving the problem. That's not so easy. In fact, it's going to be a long and a very difficult process. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Now, think about the world that Jesus was born into. Think about the world that the disciples were born into. Think about on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, there were 120 people in an upper room who came out of that upper room. The church was birthed. The New Testament church as we know it today was was birthed that day. And from that small point in Jerusalem... We are today having a conversation about Jesus Christ. We're reading from the scriptures that were handed down to us, not just from 2,000 years ago, but from many more thousands of years ago, from the time Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, to now we're standing here, we're sitting here having this discussion about Jesus Christ, about Christianity. That didn't happen overnight. That has happened over a process of time. Jesus chose 12 men. Those 12 men became his disciples. One of them, Jesus says, was a devil. And then Jesus picked another one on a road to Damascus. Most of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. These guys... Matter of fact, let me, let me read something to you here that Paul wrote. Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, and I want you to think about the contrast of the Apostle Paul. Who was the Apostle Paul? Think about this guy. He wrote, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, To the present hour we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. So we don't think of the Apostle Paul in that way. If you turn on Christian television today and you see these guys in their thousand dollar Armani suits and, and they're up there, we think that must have been who the Apostle Paul was. That must have been who Jesus was. But the reality is, Paul says... To this present hour, we're both hunger, we thirst, we're poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to get beaten today. It's Father's Day. I actually, I want just the opposite. I want to be pampered today, right? <laughs> Not because I deserve to be, but, but we expect those things, right? None of us want any of these things. Paul didn't want any of these things, but Paul's preaching of the gospel, Paul's the reality of Paul becoming a father to men like Timothy, to men like Titus, and going and preaching the gospel, this, this is what happened to Paul. He said, I've been beaten, I'm homeless, I'm poorly clothed, I haven't been treated very well. To this present hour, we've been reviled, but in the face of being reviled, we bless We've been persecuted, but in the face of our persecution, we endure. I've been defamed, but in the face of my defamation, I entreat people, I invite people to come to Christ, to find love. He says, we have been made as the filth of the world. Another translation says it this way: we have been made as the scum of the earth or the off scouring you know what the off scouring is you ever you ever you ever cook something and all that stuff sticks to the pan and just sits there and gets kind of gross that's that's the off scouring you ever had a Water bucket sits out there and it gets green and slimy, adheres to the side. That's what Paul says, we have become as the scum of the earth, the off-scouring of the earth. How many of you want to sign up for that today? (laughs) I don't. But, But here, this is the reality. This is a father talking to us today. He had no earthly children. He had no natural children. Paul never married. But this is a father talking to us today. This is a father in the faith talking to us today. He says in verse 14, he says, I don't write these things to shame you. He said, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or to shame you. That's not the point of me telling you these things. But as my beloved, listen to him, as my beloved children, I warn you. And here's where he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. He said, I'm not telling you this to shame you. I'm telling you this to warn you. you got a lot of guys coming in who want to be instructors in Christ, but there's not very many of them who want to be fathers. Now think about it. So this problem of fatherlessness, whether we're talking in the home or whether we're talking in the church, is a real problem. And solving the problem is not as easy as identifying the problem because solving the problem will require men and women, listen, to wholeheartedly embrace truth and responsibility. Men and women will only embrace truth and responsibility when real repentance takes place. We don't need mass repentance. See, we want to we wanna have a movement and go to Washington and fill up the the mall in front of the you know the Lincoln Memorial there with a million guys and say God did something. We all go there for a weekend and get together and we come home and we feel like, wow, I did something. Now the test isn't whether you went to the event in Washington with a million other men. The the test is, what are you going to do day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day? What are you going to do there, not at a huge event somewhere? See, this is kind of what our culture has become. We want to have a big event for everything and feel like we've done something because we had a big event. But big events don't solve anything. Big events don't solve problems. It's how you live your life every day that makes the difference. It's the little things, not the big things. It's the little things you do every day that will make a difference. Those little things, whichever way they go, those little things will add up to eventually make a difference in someone's life, in your life, in your children's life, in in somebody's life that God has divinely ordain you to to touch, to be in fellowship with, to live with, to work with. So we don't need mass repentance, we need personal repentance. But we do need personal repentance in mass, all right? But but that's going to start how? One life at a time, one life at a time. When I used to be in the drug-fighting business, and I really was in the drug-fighting business, and we would literally go all over the country, we would go to the most drug-infested neighborhoods, and we would wear silly little hard hats that had stickers all over them. We'd wear a T-shirt for whatever city we were in. If we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, we had a T-shirt that said, Turn Around Cincinnati. If we were in Columbus, Georgia, we had a T-shirt that said, Columbus, Georgia Against Drugs or whatever. We go we had a motto, and our motto was taking back our nation one neighborhood at a time. One neighborhood at a time. So when we were in Cincinnati, we were focused on that one neighborhood that we were marching in. If we were in Tampa, Florida, we were focused on that one neighborhood that we were marching in. And we would encourage those neighbors in that neighborhood to be faithful to go out week in and week out, to, to have eyes open daily, to, to do little things like don't hide in your house, but sit out on your porch. If you see something going on, don't be scared. Call the police. Don't be afraid to confront things when you see things. Join together and take your neighborhood back from the drug dealers and the thugs that have moved in there. Take it back. And we said, you know what, we can change our nation if we'll take our, our nation back one neighborhood at a time. We want to believe that we're, we can have some huge event in Washington and change our nation. No event in Washington is going to change our nation. But if men will purpose in their hearts to personally repent, to personally change, to personally seek the face of God, if, men, if, if we'll just do that one life at a time, if we'll encourage one another and we'll do that one life at a time, tell you what, before you know it, you're going to see a difference. You're going to see a difference. So we don't need mass repentance. We need personal repentance that's going to begin one life at a time. And if we're faithful and we're consistent, then we'll see that turn into a mass difference. So biblical repentance does not come... Listen, biblical repentance does not come from worldly sorrow. It's godly sorrow that works repentance in men's hearts. 2 Corinthians 7:10 tells us that. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Now, how many of you have ever got caught? I don't maybe you were a kid doing something you weren't supposed to do. Maybe maybe you were an adult doing something you weren't supposed to do. And you got caught doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. And as soon as you got caught, what's the first words out of your mouth? I'm sorry. <laughs> And you might really be sorry. But the question is, are you sorry because you got caught? See, that's that's worldly sorrow. The Bible says worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance. It ultimately just leads to death. Condemnation and death. But godly sorrow, godly sorrow says I'm sorry. and means it not because you got caught, but because... Something in your heart, the conviction of the Holy Spirit says, you know what, that's not right. That's not consistent with Christ, who is my life. If you're a believer, Christ is your life. You have become a partaker of the divine nature of God. And that divine nature is contrary to the nature of the world. And godly sorrow works repentance in us. Whether anybody ever catches us or not, this is what my, my, my pastor, Jack Ender. Here's what Jack taught me a long time ago. Jack said, character, character is what a man does when no one is watching. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that, that we experience, not because we got caught, but because what we may be doing, what we may be planning, what we may, we may be thinking, what What reaction came out of me is contrary to the very life and nature of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that life in me, the Spirit of God in me, should cause godly sorrow. And it should work repentance in me. So biblical repentance doesn't come from worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow works repentance in men's hearts. Godly sorrow will never be produced by me standing up here and giving you statistic after statistic after statistic of what fatherlessness does to a child or to a nation. I can paint the most horrendous picture you can imagine from all the statistics that we have, and that's not going to produce godly sorrow. It might make you feel guilty. It might make you feel condemned. It might make you feel bad. Might, might make you do all those things, but that's not the point. And that's not godly sorrow. What we need is true biblical repentance. So... When will true biblical repentance come to the church or to the people who need it? Until the gospel, listen, until the gospel touches our heart, we will be blind to our need for repentance. Statistics, painting a bad picture, telling you how bad the nation is, none of that's going to make anyone repent in a godly way, in a biblical way. The only thing that will touch our hearts, change our hearts, transform our hearts is the gospel. Until the gospel touches our heart, we will be blind to our need for repentance. The gospel deals with the solution to our problem. Who is the solution to our problem? You all know who the solution is? Christ. The gospel deals with the solution to the problem. Christ is the solution to the problem. But the gospel doesn't just deal with the solution. The the gospel deals with the problem. The problem is what? The problem's not fatherlessness. The problem's not adultery. The problem's not homosexuality. The problem's not drunkenness. The problem's not. The problem is sin. Those are symptoms of the problem. The gospel deals with the solution. Christ is the solution, but it also deals with the root problem, which is sin. And if we just try to get people to stop living their homosexual lifestyle, or we try to get men or women to stop committing adultery, or we try to get drunkards to stop being drunkards, we're just putting Band-Aids on the problem. Now, we should help people get out of those situations and those lifestyles, but just modifying their behavior is not going to solve anything. If we don't get to the root of the problem, which is the nature of sin and death that we're all born with, And there's only one solution to that. That's Jesus Christ. Remember, it's not you giving your life to Jesus that matters. It's it's Jesus giving his life to you until you become a partaker of the life of Christ. Until that life and that nature has been imparted to you through the new birth. You can put Band-Aids on your problem all day long. It's not going to solve anything. So until the gospel touches our heart, there is no transformation. And the gospel doesn't just give us the solution. The gospel reveals to us the problem, which is the nature of sin and death. The gospel, therefore, calls us to repent. Amen? Well, we don't like that word. Because when we hear the word repent, we, the implication is, well, if I need to repent, that means there's something wrong with me. Ah! That's right. Until men realize there's something wrong. When do you go to a doctor? Usually most people go. I know most men don't go until they have to. I mean, Wally, how many times you said, yeah, I haven't been to a doctor in a while. I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'll go get checked out. It just doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> I mean, when you're, when you're laying on the ground and they can't drag you out of the house, say, well, okay, well, if I have to, I guess, go ahead and take me to the doctor. We we don't go until we realize there's a problem. When do you call on Jesus to save you? When you realize you need a Savior. The gospel is good news, not only because it points you to the Savior, but you'll never, you'll never, you may look to the Savior, but you'll never fix your eyes on the Savior. You'll never really give the Savior any thought until you understand that you need a Savior. The gospel doesn't just show us the Savior, it shows us our need for a Savior. Godly sorrow is hindered if the popular messages from our pulpits never do anything but tickle our ears and stroke our flesh. This is exactly what Paul meant when he says, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you do not have many Fathers. You don't have many fathers. The problem, we have the same absence of fathers in the pulpits of America that is reflected in the homes of America. Because the church, the culture is a reflection. Now, here's another interesting bit from a survey that was done in 2009. This was a survey of mothers. And this survey dealt with the attitudes mothers have about fathering. And here's a quote from this survey. Mothers, even those that indicated they were not at all religious, didn't matter whether they were We're talking mothers, even mothers who didn't consider themselves spiritual, religious, didn't matter. These are mothers who don't even consider themselves religious. These mothers indicated that churches or communities of faith are the best places for fathers to learn about fatherhood. Now, that that should tell us something right there. These mothers who, who didn't even have any faith of their own, didn't even consider themselves religious at all, were still able to recognize that the place, the best place for men to learn about fatherhood was the church. That doesn't even make sense. Except that, even though those women were not religious or faithful, they were still human beings created by who? Their Father in heaven, God in heaven. There's something inherent in us that just knows. We bear the fingerprint of God. So the church is a place for fathers. And this survey also alludes to the problem of men not taking their spiritual roles and necessitating that women fulfill what God ordained for men. Here's another telling bit of information from another survey of men who have children. All of these were men who have children. These are all fathers. Over 50% of these fathers responding agreed that fathers are, listen, that fathers are replaceable by their mothers or other men. So they did this nationwide survey and they talked to all these fathers and, and the question was, do you consider yourself a father to be replaceable And they said, yeah, 50% of these fathers said, yeah, I'm replaceable by their mother or another man. Here's the question I had after reading that statistic. Why do 50% of these men surveyed believe that they're replaceable by mothers or other men? And the answer to that question is, is because these men do not know the spiritual significance of being a father. Paul said, you guys have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. You're running after all these guys who are going to tickle your ears and stroke your flesh, but, but I'm telling you, what you need is not another instructor. What you need is a father. Let's read Paul's words again. When he tells him this, for though you have... 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers in Christ. He says, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. See, this is important. How were you begotten? Now, I'm not talking about the birds and the bees. What is it that caused you to turn to Christ? And we talk about this a lot in the church. This is a huge conversation going on in the church right now. I just had a meeting this week with a pastor who I'd never, never sat down and talked with before. And he actually contacted me. He doesn't even live in town. Contacted me, we got together. And we're just talking about the church and the things that are happening in the church. And uh, it is amazing to hear the similar stories. It's amazing to hear the similar things that are taking place. This, I'm telling you, from coast to coast, from border to border, this is a huge conversation taking place in the church. What what is it that we are drawing people with to our churches? What's causing people to come through our doors? And what's causing people to stay in our seats? And I'll never forget the words of Roger Hodges the last time I went to the worship conference at Christ for the Nation. He was the worship leader of a huge church in Amarillo, Texas. And he left that multi-thousand member church to become the worship leader of a church of 150 people. He said, at this huge church that I was at, he said, man, we had all the bells and whistles. We had everything to draw people in. He said, but what I found out, if the bell didn't get louder, the lights didn't get brighter, People become disgruntled. Whatever you draw them with, whatever you win them with, that's what you're going to have to keep them with. Listen, if you came here because you love the music, if the music doesn't get better and better and better to your liking, guess what? You're going to grow tired of the music one day and decide you need another place. If you came here because I, you think I'm the greatest preacher on earth, boy, I need to talk to you. If You think that. You need to go listen to some other people. But, but whatever caused you to come here, if it was anything other than Jesus, if it's not Jesus that has captured your heart, if it's not Jesus that has your attention, if it's not Jesus that has your affection, if it's not Jesus that draws you, then Jesus won't keep you. But if it's Jesus that has brought you, if it is Jesus, that has drawn you if it is jesus that has turned your heart and your gaze to him and it is jesus and jesus alone you will never need anyone or anything but jesus and this is our problem in the church today We must call men to realize and to take their irreplaceable responsibility as fathers from the pulpit to the home. We must challenge men to take up that very spiritual role. The church should be, uphold a model of fatherhood for all men. That means the men and the fathers who fill the pulpits of our churches must not back down from the responsibility the office calls us to. We cannot, we must not, we dare not back down from the truth. But this has been the problem with the American church. We've backed away from the truth. And this is why we see the flood of corruption that has not only inundated the church, but, but it is filling our nation. Because I believe this. I believe the church is the gatekeeper. And we've thrown the gate open wide for the corruption that we're seeing in our nation. And it's going to have to be the church to close the gate. It's going to have to be. The goal of a father is not to make sure everyone in the house gets everything they want. When they want it and how they want it. That's not the role of a father. You guys ever been on a cruise? How many of you have been on a cruise ship? Okay. You know what the role of the cruise director is? The role of the cruise director is to make sure you get everything you want, how you want it, and when you want it. At 3 o'clock in the morning, if you want a ribeye steak with blue cheese crumbles and a baked potato loaded on the side with a big salad, you know what? That cruise director has a responsibility or they've got, they'll have a buffet going 24-7 on that cruise ship. they got places where you can go and eat and do whatever you want all the time. You know why? Because it's the responsibility of that cruise director to make sure you get what you want, how you want it, when you want it. That's what his responsibility is. That while you're on that ship, you're not wanting or lacking for anything. His job is to spoil you rotten and make you so rottenly spoiled that when you decide to come cruise again, there will not enter into your mind another cruise line or another cruise ship. I'm going to go right back to that one right there, because they spoil me good. That's what a cruise director does. Guess what? That's not what the church is. Guess what? I'm not a cruise director. I'm not called to be a cruise director. I'm not called to be an activity director. God calls me to be a father. So we treat life like, a, like it's a big cruise. We're here to have fun. We're here to be entertained. We're here to get everything we desire as much as possible. We've turned those who have been charged with being fathers into cruise directors, into activity directors. And that's not what the church was birthed to be. If you don't give me what I want, I'll go find another ship to cruise on that will give me what I want. So what do we see in our culture? Here's what we see. Men out cruising around seeking pleasure from one relationship to another, multiplying corruption everywhere they go. Not faithful to the mother of his child, not faithful to his family. I mean, this is prevalent today. You ever ask yourself why it's so prevalent today? Do you know what? We have church members doing the very same thing. I know this is a painful message, but I'm going to be a good father today tell you the truth. We have pastors cruising around trying to find disgruntled pleasure seekers to come aboard their ship. They promise bigger and better, more fun, more exciting experiences for those shopping for a more self-pleasing cruise. This has become the tactic of the church in America. Let's see who can outmarket the other. Let's see who can out-advertise, let's see who can out-promote, let's see who can out-attract. I'm going to just tell you it's shameful. It is absolutely shameful. This pastor I talked to this week, he told me of an incident in his church. He said, man, I, he said, I had, I had someone, um, a couple. He said, they were our friends for 16 years. And he said, something happened. He said, we had to bring discipline. And they didn't like the discipline that was brought. And they were out of there. He said, they went, left my church, went right down the road to another church. He said, I felt compelled. He said, and they didn't do it in a quiet way. He said, they did it in a very ugly way. They did it in a a way that they put a bunch of stuff out there. And and he said, I called that pastor of that church. And I said, hey, so-and-so has left my church and has come to your church. And I just want to let you know, this is how they left. This is what they did. And I think you need to be aware of that. I'm telling you what, that guy who left and went to this other church. The other pastor confronted him and said, hey, I just got a call from your pastor. That guy was livid. He was ready to sue this other pastor. He was, I mean, but yet, what what did both of those pastors do? Both of those pastors operated in a biblical way. They followed the scripture. And here's the thing. Are you hearing me, church? We all are excited about following the Scripture as long as it's convenient for us. But when it becomes inconvenient for us, when it challenges us, guess what? We don't want to do anymore. Oh, Pastor Jeff, you can't say that. Pastor Jeff, you can't talk about that. Pastor Jeff, that, why? It's in the Scripture. Are we going to pick and choose what we're not going to talk about, what we're not going to do? Because why? Because it's hard to be a good father. Dads, how many of you just thoroughly enjoyed disciplining your children? I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's a father out there who just enjoys disciplining their children. But how many of you fathers disciplined your children because it was necessary? Not because you wanted to. You did it because in the long run, it was going to create a healthy child and make for a healthy family I'll just be honest with you listen I'm a pastor I can I can tell you cuz I talk to pastors all the time pastors are afraid to discipline to bring discipline in the church you know why they're afraid to bring discipline Because we have so many churches, there's a church on every corner, because pastors know the moment I bring discipline to people in my congregation, all they're going to do is leave. The moment I address some of these things from the pulpit, I I just know they're going to leave. Paul says, hey, I'm homeless. (laughs) I'm not well clothed. I'm being persecuted. Who do you think was persecuting him? People who were supposed to be of faith. Are we fathers or are we instructors? We're called to produce children, beget children through the gospel and encourage them to take up their cross daily. And equip them for the work of the ministry. So that they can go into the world and be salt and light. So that you can become a catalyst for transformation. How is the world around you going to be transformed? Think about your family. Think about the people you work with. How are those people going to be transformed? How are you transformed? Somebody told you the gospel. Somebody shared Christ with you. Somebody was brave enough to open their mouth and share the Word of God, or maybe you were raised in a home by a father and mother who, who raised you up in the faith. Praise God, however it happened, I didn't. that's not how I came to faith in Christ. I didn't go to church growing up. I didn't get saved until two months I, after I graduated from college. I, I never darkened the door of a church except for weddings and funerals. That was it. The occasional Christmas Eve service with my brother who was Catholic. Somebody shared Christ. Somebody was salt and light and shared the gospel with me. You've got to go out and be salt and light. You've got to become a catalyst for transformation. Let it start in your families. Let it start with those closest to you. But don't let it stop there. We're called to beget children through the gospel. And it's in that process. It's when we, it's when we are being what we were created to be. It's what, when we're being the salt and the light that we're called to be. This is where we find true and lasting joy. Listen, if we just go from ship to ship, from cruise to cruise, trying to find a bigger party, a better buffet, do you know that trip is going to end one day? That's why you find people that that just wander endlessly. God didn't call us to wander endlessly. Listen, God wants us planted. God wants us flourishing. God wants you to be Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, in his word, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be trees planted by the rivers of water whose leaf doesn't fail, whose fruit comes forth in due season. And whatever he does, he shall prosper. It's a beautiful picture. That's God's desire for you. But notice what this blessed man loves. He delights in the law of the Lord. Not not the convenient parts, not some of it, but in all of it. Who wrote those words? David wrote those words. David wrote those words about the first five books of the Scripture, about the Torah. about the, 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 the first five books, the, the prophets, the writings. David's pinning this psalm, and he says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the law, Lord. The law was hard. Do you realize that? The law showed us our shortcomings. The law showed us our need. For God's righteousness. The law showed us our need for God's salvation. This is why Paul says, You have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers. Instructors are fleeting and dispensable. But fathers are lasting and irreplaceable. Are we fathers or are we simply instructors? Listen, an instructor does not have the same authority or the same investment as a father. A father has authority on the basis of his God-given role and responsibility. A father also has an investment in his children that is irreplaceable. Fathers, whether you realize it or not, you have an investment in your children that's irreplaceable. We are to be spiritual fathers and mothers to those that God places in our lives. Listen, our investment is irreplaceable when we agree to walk in that role. That investment, listen fathers, that investment is not determined by how much your child recognizes it. But it's determined by how much the father recognizes it and how much that father contributes to that investment. These things are true in the home and they're true in the church. Listen, an instructor is there for the event, for the moment. He has a minimal authority because he has minimal investment. A father, on the other hand, is there for life, for the long haul. He has maximum authority. Why? Because he has maximum investment. Do you know what we're called to be? We're called to be fathers. Men, you're called to be fathers, whether you have a child or not. Spiritually speaking, we are all called to be fathers and mothers. We're called to grow up in the faith. We're called to grow up and to mature. And as we grow up and mature, whether we like it or not, Somebody's looking at us. Somebody's watching us. Somebody's listening to us. We're called to be fathers. We're called to be the the difficult. Listen, we're called to the difficult and the often unpopular responsibilities that we have to fulfill. We must not confuse our roles. Are you listening? Don't confuse your roles. Let us never be simply instructors or worse, those seeking their own pleasure. Let us, let us, let us be fathers. Paul goes on, and here in First Corinthians, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Do you, do you understand what Paul is talking about there? For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. He's not talking about his ability to to perform miracles that's not that's not power if you want to know why that's not power in the sense that Paul's talking about it you can turn over to Matthew chapter 7 and you'll see that there will be those that will come to Jesus in that day who are able to do great supernatural feats. We prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we perform great signs and wonders in your name. Here I am, Jesus. Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I do not know you. So Paul here is not talking about just simply the power to do supernatural things. He's not just talking about the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, the power to deliver. Listen, God still does all of that today. But none of those things saved anybody. Paul is talking about the power and the authority of the word of God that was committed to him. He's talking about the power and the authority of the gospel of Christ. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Paul said, listen, I come to you as a father. I come to you with authority and with power. Not given to me by men, but given to me by God. And he, he asked them, he says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? He was ready to come either way. He's calling these guys to repentance. He says, how do you want me? I'm a father. He said, I'm your spiritual father. I know you got a lot of instructors, but you don't have very many fathers, and I'm your father, and I'm getting ready to come to you. And how shall I come? With a rod or with love and with gentleness? Now, I thought about giving each one of you men today a small mirror You know, like at the dollar store, I was going to buy you a mirror, those little round mirrors that you could put your lipstick on. No, that's what, not not really. I really was going to buy you a mirror. I was going to buy you a mirror and encourage you to look in that mirror every day as a reminder that we are to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. But I decided not to do that. Then Mr. Rao, I come in today and Mr. Rao pulls out a keychain, from 1998, we gave those out, Father's Day of 1998. He kept, now he's, he is an exception. He is an exception. He kept his, his keychain and he hung it up where he'd see it every day when he hung his keys up. So I was going to give you a mirror today so you could look in it, remind you to look in it every day and to remind you that you're, you're to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. But I chose not to do that. It would have been a neat gimmick, right? I could have made a nice label and put on the back of that thing. But see, here's part of the problem in the church. We've defaulted to neat and cool gimmicks. Everybody wants a gimmick. You gave me a mirror last year, Pastor Jeff, for Father's Day. What are you going to give me this year? Uh, I've already got that book. I think you all gave me that book five years ago. I never read it. See, the problem is we've defaulted to neat and cool gimmicks that come, that, that come to replace what we're called, what we're really called to in the scriptures. Do you know that you have a mirror? You already have a mirror. Hold your mirror up. Who, who's got a mirror? Hold your mirror up. Ah, I see some of you know. This is your mirror. Did you know? Did you know that? This is your mirror. Do you know that in the temple and in the tabernacle there was, there was the, uh, it was called the sea. It was the the basin. It was a it was a big brass basin full of water, and they polished that brass to such a high shine. They put water in it, and this is what the priest had to do before the priest went to offer the sacrifice. The priest had to walk up to that basin. This is where they washed their hands. He walked up and he looked into that basin and it was, like a, it was like a mirror. It was a perfect reflection. He looked into that basin, into that mirror to make sure that he didn't have any imperfections, he didn't have anything that would cause him to be unclean when he offered that sacrifice. Especially on the Day of Atonement, when the one day of the year when they went behind the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the mercy seat to sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Do you know what that basin, do you know what that that represented? Everything Everything in the tabernacle represents something. Nothing is there without a purpose. Everything represents something. It all speaks of one thing. You know who it is? It all speaks of Christ. That that shiny brass basin they'd look into, that was the mirror. You know what that represented? Represented the Word of God. Not just this Word here. This Word here is simply the written Word that is to reveal to us who? The living Word. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is your mirror. This is your mirror. I would venture to say there's not one person here that does not look in a mirror at least once a day. Get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, comb your hair if you got any to comb. Some of us don't. It's quite liberating. Don't feel sorry for me. But you do something. Trim your mustache. Make sure you don't have food stuck in it. We we look in a mirror multiple times a day. Driving in our cars, constantly looking in a mirror. Now, I didn't give you a mirror today because you already have a mirror. It's the Word of God. Who doesn't have a Bible? Anybody here not have a Bible? Anybody here not have a mirror? Because I'll give you one today before you leave. I've got got some I'll give you. Because everybody should have the Word of God. You have a mirror. It's it's the Scriptures. This is the mirror that you should be looking into daily. A cheap gimmick. Listen to me. A cheap gimmick gimmick will never replace the real thing. But there's a lot of people that would rather have a cheap gimmick than the real thing, and that is sad. Until you, listen, man or woman, begin to look daily for yourself into the Word of God. Not on TV, not on radio. You listening to me? Not what your mama or your daddy or your grandpa or your grandma told you, not even what the preacher said one time. Until you, for yourself, Crack open this book until you, for yourself, begin to look into this mirror. You will never see yourself for who you are and who God wants you to be and who God wants you to be being conformed to. Paul says we are being conformed to the image of the Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we gaze into this mirror, as we look, into that image, we are being transformed into the same image. 1 Corinthians 13, we look now in a mirror and we see dimly, but then face to face, and we shall know even as we are known. The more you look into this mirror, the more you will be known, the more you will know as you are known, the more you will know how God sees you in His Son. You can't see that clearly right now. None of us can see it as clearly as we will one day. But if you don't begin to look into this mirror, not a gimmick, but the real thing, open up the book, open up the Scripture, look into God's mirror, Let it reveal who you are. Let it reveal who you are being conformed to. Let it reveal Christ to you. When we begin to do this, God will honor His Word and godly sorrow will work repentance in in our hearts and the real and lasting transformation that only God can bring through His gospel will begin to take place in our lives and around us. This is when we're going to begin to see light break forth out of darkness. Rise up, men of God, and take your place and lead your families as God has ordained you to do so. Women, rise up and encourage the man to take his place. Don't usurp his authority, but encourage him to walk in that authority with your prayers and with your support. The crisis of fatherlessness should not be known among us. It is among us. But we shouldn't leave the fatherless fatherless. Now remember I said fathers are irreplaceable. None of us are here to take the place of anyone's father. But we need to become fathers to the fatherless. One out of every three child is born in a fatherless home right now in America. This has been going on for a long time. That means we have millions of of children out there, young adults out there, people out there who have not known their fathers. And ultimately, what we've got to do is point them to the Father in heaven and help them to see that the Father in heaven is not a reflection of the failings of their earthly father, but he is the one father above their earthly father, good or bad, that loves them with an unconditional, undying eternal love. If fathers will rise up and let Christ shine through their hearts, through their own lives, in their home and in the church. Listen, some people are so busy doing God's work, that we don't have time to let God work in us. And being spiritually busy has become a substitute for taking time. How many of you, now let me ask you, men or women, how many of you get up in the morning and say, I'm too busy to go in the bathroom and put my makeup on, brush my hair, brush my teeth, make sure I'm put together together, before I go out? How many of you, no one would do that. I mean, I don't care at the greatest emergency, you know what you're going to do? You're going to, if it's just for a split second, you're going to go into that bathroom, you're going to make sure that you got the, at least the very basics done before you head out that door. But how many of us are too busy to look in this mirror, the mirror that really counts? We say, well, it's okay, I did something for God today, I did a nice service for him, or I did a nice work for him. Listen, there is no spiritual busyness that is a substitute for looking into this mirror and allowing God to transform your heart and your life. Don't, don't be deceived. There is no substitute for your own time looking into God's word. Your spiritual busyness will not transform you. But you know what will? The word of God. It will. It will transform you. The gospel of Christ. It will. It will transform you. It will transform. Not only you. If we are faithful. Men and women. If we are faithful to create and establish, and build a legacy beyond ourselves. If we'll get our eyes off of just us, and we'll begin to live life in a way, and build a legacy, so that we know our children, and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, that this legacy of faith, this legacy of truth, is going to be passed on to them, even after we leave. If we'll not see ourselves as an end, but simply as a means. If we will allow ourselves to be nothing more than a stepping stone that God would lay to be used for His greater purpose. If, if you will take the time to let God work in your heart and in your mind, you'll begin to comprehend and understand that. You'll be delivered of selfishness. You'll be delivered of self-seeking and pleasure-seeking. Listen, you'll let God do a work in you that will really, really make a difference in your life, in your family. Families need transformation in this city desperately, desperately. And it's not just the church that understands that. We had a meeting with the school superintendent this week, and he desperately understands that families need transformation in this city. And he wants the church to help bring that about. Transformation in our families isn't going to happen because we preach nice messages. That can contribute, but it's really going to happen because you choose to let transformation take place in your life. And you begin to affect that and be a catalyst for that. Don't hide your light under a bushel basket. Don't do it. Don't lose your flavor. Be salty. Be light. Trust God to work. Open that mirror and let God do a work in you. Go out into this world. Go out into this city. Go out and be salt and be light. Let's believe God for transformation. Amen? I'm serious. Don't let this just be, don't let that just be an amen because the pastor said it in the message. Amen means so be it. If you say so be it, then mean it. So be it. Okay, let's all stand. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to pray, I just want to pray over all the I want to say a prayer over all the men. Men, whether you're fathers or not. And if you're standing with a man, if it's your husband, or you see a man standing there and he doesn't have someone, I want everyone to just put their hand on either your husband, your father, or a man near you. And I want us just to agree together in prayer. Men are so important. And our culture has devalued men. Father, I just pray today for the men in this building. Not only for the men in this building, but for all the men that they represent. Men and fathers. And husbands. Lord, I pray that fatherhood would be restored. To your church. God we would not just seek to be good instructors. But God we would have the courage to be good fathers. That Lord we would love our children enough. To say the hard things. To make the hard decisions. We'd love our children enough. Not only to do that Father. But to rejoice with them. To celebrate with them. That Father we would purpose in our hearts. Not only to train up, but we would purpose in our hearts to rejoice in the Lord always. To find our greatest joy and our greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ. I pray for these men today that they would be men who would find their greatest joy and their greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ. I pray for these men today that they would have a realization, a comprehension that the Spirit of God dwells on the inside of them. That they have been filled with the power that is incomprehensible, a power that is exceedingly great that works toward them. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in their very bodies and it will strengthen even their mortal bodies. Lord, I pray for men today. I pray for fathers today that they would rise up and take their proper role. I pray for women today, especially the wives and the mothers, that they would allow those men to rise up and take their proper role, that they would trust God. Even if they had trepidation about their husbands, they would trust God and pray for that man that he would come to stand in the place that God ordained him to stand in. That we would all come together, join together, and build one another up in love, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, As the body of Christ is supposed to do. Lord I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that you have chosen us. For this time. This is our time of visitation on this earth. Lord you have chosen us to live in the cities we live in. To live in the areas we live in. And God we ask that you would use us for your glory. Use us for your glory God. Thank you. Thank you for your grace that allows that to happen. Be glorified in your church, Lord Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great Father's Day, everybody.